All my life, I've been afraid of not being the best that I could possibly be. Just been afraid of it. One of those guys running away from, from the thought of being a loser. I used to be fairly good at this, covering up my weaknesses, putting on a performance to please my parents and to please my teachers. You know, some kids are like that. They get what they want by conforming. Other kids get what they want by rebelling. You might even say those kids embrace the idea of being a loser and get an identity from it. We have a lot of people at SCUM from both ends of that spectrum. Just telling you right now. It's weird, though, that as I've gotten older, I'm becoming more and more accustomed to the idea of being a loser. I've learned to embrace it. Because, honestly, um, at 64, I am old enough to know what a poser I've been a lot of my life. I, I haven't met my own standards, not by a long shot. There's only one man in history who did everything right. And he's, he's the man we celebrate today, Jesus Christ. He was the best that a human being could be in every aspect. He was loving. He was honest. He was compassionate. He was kind. He was just. He was tough. He was gentle. And he was good. I think the greatest irony in the universe is that he came to be a loser. Jesus was the ultimate punk rocker. He tore down the oppressive Jewish religious establishment and he stood alone in the sneering face of Rome, the world power. He was the winner who lost, but he also became the loser who won. Today we're going to look at a Bible passage that's uh, 700 years before Jesus was crucified and rose again. It comes from the prophecies of Isaiah. It was uh, St. Augustine who, back in the 5th century, said, it's, it's not a prophecy, Isaiah, this part of Isaiah, it's a gospel. The fifth gospel to be added to Matthew, to Mark, to Luke, and John. Martin Luther said that every Christian ought to be able to repeat the passage we're going to go over today by heart. There are references to this section of Isaiah's writing in Matthew, in Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, 1 Peter, and 1 John. There's no Old Testament scripture that is quoted more often 
or referred to more often than this passage we're going to go over tonight in Isaiah. Now this is what I've done to make clear today the incredible fulfillment of these powerful predictions obvious to us. I've paired the scriptures with Greek Orthodox iconography and from scenes in the film The Passion of the Christ that came out in 2004. You should have no problem seeing the connection between this amazing prophecy, which was penned, stylist, whatever, 700 years beforehand. Some of the photos are going to be hard for you to see. I mean, difficult to look at. Because they depict Jesus' suffering accurately. So be advised, if you're squeamish, you need to look away for a while until I go on to the next one. So, let's go to Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised up, lifted up, and highly exalted. Now, Isaiah has been talking about this servant. This is the fourth time he actually brings up the servant in his book of prophecies. And I just want you to know that wisdom here is an important thing. Wisdom means the ability to put practical knowledge into action. It's not just knowing stuff. It's be able to do something with it. That's wisdom. And so, right off the bat, the servant seems pretty awesome. And then we get this exaltation and triplicate. He'll be raised, lifted up, highly exalted. Now, in Hebrew poetry, they did that when they really wanted to stress something. Like, this is how amazing this servant is. We're going to repeat it three times. Like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? Same kind of thing there. But, if you want to get playful, you can look at the three liftings up of Jesus just for fun. He was lifted up on a cross, the first icon. He rose from the grave the second icon. He ascended into heaven bodily in front of the disciples. That's the third icon. Raised, lifted up, highly exalted. I don't know if Jewish scholars would like that, but I think it's fun. Let's go on to verse 14. Just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. Again, 700 years before the crucifixion of Jesus. Appalled is the right word. And it's explained in in the verses, the words that follow here. This servant undergoes so much suffering that his bodily appearance seems hardly human. Just so you know, there's also deep 
inner anguish and sorrow that's going on. And you know how some people telegraph what they're feeling inside on their faces, in their body postures? I'm sure that was going on with Jesus. Because in some ways, the spiritual anguish was greater than the physical torment that he was going through. Verse 15. So he will sprinkle many nations, and the kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. If you go through the Old Testament and you pay attention to the priestly passages, there's a lot of sprinkling going on. You could sprinkle water on people as a priest to signify their cleansing. You could sprinkle blood on people from the sacrifice to signify how this sacrifice has cleansed them of their blood guilt or their sin. And so all of a sudden we're looking at Jesus as a priest figure and he just doesn't sprinkle the Jews who are close by at the temple. He sprinkles the nations. He takes away the guilt of the nations with his own blood. Amen. Thank you, Lord. His exaltation comes and gives him complete supremacy over all earthly rulers. Heads of state fall silent in his presence. They don't know what to say. They will not know what to say. Because they'll be astonished, overawed, in deep respect. I just want you to notice that this ends in a note of triumph, right? Now, we're going to read the rest of this prophecy. It's all poetry, by the way, in Hebrew. But we're not going to come to a note of triumph until the very end of it again. So it kind of begins and ends with a note of winning. The servant who lost ends up winning. And the reason that I think Isaiah is making this point this way is because nothing in between here is going to make you think anything victorious has happened. Let's go on to chapter 53. This is all part of the same poem. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. God's way of doing things doesn't look like our way of doing things very often. I mean... If I were going to cast Jesus, he'd be really good looking. Maybe he would look like Jim Caviezel. 
who played Jesus in the 2004 film. I don't think Mel Gibson got it. He should have picked someone really average looking, below average looking. And I think that would have been closer to the truth. A great victory looks at first like a big defeat is what's going on here. Why? Three reasons are given. One, he comes on the scene in a quiet and an assuming way, not the way you would expect a king to come. I mean, if I were going to bring Jesus to the earth, if I were God, I would have him on a surfboard riding a tidal wave across the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. And I would wait until there were TVs and, and planes to be able to film it and broadcast it all around the world. You know, maybe with a billion angels on either side of him surfing alongside. I mean, that's what I would do. God doesn't do it that way. He picks a stable in the middle of the backwoods Middle East. I don't get it. But this is what the prophecy was hundreds of years beforehand. Just to alert you, folks, that when God sends the Messiah, He ain't going to look like you think He's going to look. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. In the end, Jesus despised because he himself takes on the pain and the suffering of the world. It's all a setup. It's all a setup. It was meant to be this way. You don't think it's right. You want to scream out and say no. I was watching a video this week. They were doing a passion play. And just as the Roman soldier came and he took a long spear and put it like under the arm of the guy who was on the cross on stage, some dude comes from the audience and tackles the Roman centurion. And there's a big scuffle because he can't stand to see Jesus being hurt anymore. I remember taking, uh, well, I wasn't there, but I heard about it. My wife and her brother took our, you know, two-year-old daughter to the Passion Play. And um, and when Pilate came on the stage, my daughter couldn't take it. She just started screaming, devil, devil. She was so pissed off. And she was only like two or three years old. Verse 4. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. Who's the us here? 
Who's the hour? Who's the hour? Surely He took up our pain and bore our suffering. Who's the we considered Him punished by God, stricken by Him and afflicted? I think it's everybody. It's the Jews who were there. It's the Romans who were there. It's us today. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who think Jesus was a historical figure who got in trouble with authorities and got murdered without a fair trial. That's what they think. It was predicted 2,700 years ago that you would feel that way. Despite what we think, He's not suffering justly because God punished him for his own sins. It's our suffering that he bore. It's our transgressions, our sins, our wickedness that he suffered. You're going to see in the next couple of verses the repetition of our, 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 our. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. According to Isaiah, the servant dies for a very specific purpose. He was pierced for our transgressions. That's the same word as sins. He takes on our pain for the sake of others, for our sakes, His wounds look like an apparent defeat, but His death seals a future triumph. A time when all the wrong on the earth is going to be set to rights. This passage sets the theology for the New Testament, folks. The Apostle Peter explains it this way. When Jesus died on the cross... His suffering and death healed us of our sins, enabling us to live a righteous life. 1 Peter 2.24 They all saw this as bedrock. The proto-gospel. Verse 6 We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the wickedness of us all. This is grace, folks. This is grace. We, the blind, rebellious people of God, are the sheep who have gone astray doing our own thing. I mean, you may think sin is like going and worshiping an idol. But that's not what the Bible's saying here. It's saying just going your own way with no thought of what God would want is enough to bring Jesus on the cross. He's the one who gets beaten up for it. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And the crazy thing is, it's the sheep that are killing him. Picture sheep with little knives in their hooves. Killing the shepherd is protecting them and feeding them and leading them and healing them. King David was a shepherd. He got to be king. Jesus is the great shepherd. He gets to be a sacrifice. 
this turning around, this winner who becomes a loser, this kind of transmutes the whole thing into some giant messianic sacrifice is what it does. Verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. You know, a lot of animals, you take them in to any place to do something with them, and they are making all sorts of noise. It doesn't matter if you're trying to help them, you know. The cows are mooing, and the horses are neighing. But sheep, when they go to get shorn, they don't say a word. They're quiet. And this highlights Jesus' submissiveness to the injustice that he receives. There's nothing that pisses me off more than being accused of something I did not do. Or being accused of something that I didn't do, which I did. I mean, seriously, I get livid. You've never seen me more Greek than that because I'm so upset. I mean, I, bring it on if I deserve it. But if I don't deserve it, keep it. Not Jesus. And, and this is a lesson that I've got to learn my entire life. How do I suffer unjustly with the grace and the love and the silence that Jesus did? How do you do that? I don't know. He must be God. That's all i got to say. So the metaphor has been extended here, right? We're talking about sheep again. The animals of sacrifice. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John the Baptist said when pointing out Jesus at the very, very beginning of his ministry. This was meant to happen. Verse 8, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich or with a rich man in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. So Jesus goes to his death without an attempt to defend himself. Jesus knew he was going as a sacrifice. He knew he was going to substitute himself in our place when he instituted communion, which we'll take in a little bit. He said in Matthew 26, This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He knew what he was doing. Knew what he was doing. Don't let anybody tell you he didn't know what he was doing. Everybody around him understood that as well. Peter's sermon 
on the birthday of the church, later on in Acts, he talks about baptism in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, that he ties Jesus' death and the forgiveness of sins together. Paul makes another point of it in Colossians 1. The contrast seems stark here, okay? So, even though he's this righteous man, this humble servant, even though that he's assigned a grave with the wicked, in other words, Jesus is crucified between two thieves, like a common criminal. Isaiah saw it 700 years before it happened. And then with the rich man and his death, he was placed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Jewish ruling council, a very wealthy man to have his own tomb like that, and he lend it to Jesus. Wouldn't it be great to have a tomb that you lend to Jesus? Like you're going, hmm, I wonder what will happen to me if I go in there after I die. Maybe it still has some of that lingering Jesus resurrection dust in it. I don't know. But Jesus was neither a rich man nor was he a criminal. He wasn't given to the greed of the rich, the sins of the rich. He wasn't given to the greed of thieves and robbers. There's a a contrast being made here. Verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. Though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. I mean, isn't the opening line of verse 10 terrible? What good father could wish for his son to be crushed? I mean, seriously. The only way that you could do this would be for some greater good to be accomplished. And what greater good could possibly justify the crushing of this perfect servant? The answer is given in the second part of the verse. It's when the life of the servant is offered as a sin offering, that God's purpose for bringing him to this place is revealed. Jesus never had any earthly children with Mary Magdalene, contrary to what you might have seen in the movies or in certain books by Dan Brown. All right? The gospel, the fake gospel of Thomas, it just didn't happen. One of the ignomies that Jesus had to undergo from an earthly standpoint was that he died without descendants. It was very important for a Jewish man to have descendants. That's why when you read, you know, and this man was the father of this man, and this man was the father of this man, and then this man was the father of this man, and then this man was the father of this man. You read those genealogies, right? 
is really important. Jesus died with none except God knew that he would see spiritual offspring. Millions upon millions upon millions of people. You and me, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, get to be children of God. Verse 11. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Mel Gibson got this one right. That's a still from the movie. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. The servant didn't come really to tell people what God wants. He came to be what God wants for us. But how can a person who is cut off from the land of the living without descendants ever have these things? It certainly looks to me like resurrection is the only answer here and is prophesied 700 years before it happened. And Jesus is satisfied. There is nothing that satisfies him more when he sees a newborn Christian when he has little brothers and sisters, when he has spiritual children, he still considers everything it cost to be worth it at that moment. When you come to faith in Jesus, he is ecstatic. It was all worth it. He is singing for joy over you. In verse 12, the final note of triumph Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So why does God give this loser the victor's crown? Because he could take it. He was treated like one of the rebels. When they couldn't take their punishment, he took it for them. When they couldn't win, he won for them. So... Here's a couple words I want you to see. Next slide. This is where losers win and where winners lose. Right here. This is the crossroads. This is the crux of the matter. This is where winners lose and losers win. If you want to gain eternal life in Jesus, you must agree to lose your life now for His sake. The one you have now. If you want to keep trying to be a winner all of on your own without Jesus, 
you'll end up losing eternal life, and uh, even the life you have now will be lost because you're going to die. But Jesus offers himself to us here. Don't respond. Please, I'm begging you. Don't respond. I don't need a sin offering. I can meet God's requirements all on my own. In fact, I'm not even sure God exists. That's a bad wager, folks. All right? I mean, Pascal, one of the greatest minds of the Western world, mathematics and philosophy, he said, you know, this makes sense. Bet on the fact that there's a God. Because if there is, it means everything that you've won. And if, if there isn't a God and you've made that bet, you don't lose any more than you would have lost anyway. Don't reject the old-fashioned idea of sin and consider yourself be as worthy as the next person for the blessings of God. That's a bad wager. It would be as though after all this pain and all this struggle that Jesus went through, that it was for nothing. Then I'm sure Jesus finds no satisfaction in the offering that he made. It's a simple thing to say that Christ died for the sins of the world, I think. It's quite another thing to say that Christ died for, for my sin. That my sin would have put him up there on that cross all by itself. I've been alive long enough to know I'm not perfect. When I want to do good things, I don't know. I end up not doing them. And then, for some crazy reason, I end up doing the bad things that I don't want to do. Who's going to save me from this cycle of sin and death? Who in the universe could save me from that? It is Jesus Christ. And the sacrifice He made on my behalf. I nailed Jesus to the cross. I have mocked Him in my life. I remember telling a Bible study leader, Hey, Scott, is this a fairy tale I, I heard about once? Huh? What a little sh... I was. I came to Jesus after... Quite a long search, actually. I wanted to find out that the Bible wasn't true. I wanted to find out that there was no need to turn my lover over to God. I wanted to find out that I could sin with impunity and never have to pay the consequences of how many girls I misused, how many bottles of beer I misused. That's what I wanted to find out. But the more I studied the Bible, the more I realized, uh-oh, I, I think maybe this is true. I will never in all eternity regret handing my life over to Jesus. Never. Never. I have hope. I've got a reason 
to live. I've got a reason to be better. I've got a reason not to live in shame and guilt. Jesus has taken my life and made something good out of it. I shudder to think what I would have become. I shudder to think of it. I would have been a bad dude. I would have. I'll take risks. And I would have been taking risks in the wrong direction. Would have hurt a lot of people and myself. If you've already made a decision to follow Christ, then I got this question for you. Who in your life needs to hear about Jesus, the Messiah prophesied here in Isaiah? Who, who needs to hear it? Because they're just dying out there. They put up a good show. They do a great performance, just like me, just like you. But when they're alone, they are so desperately alone. And they've got to deal with all that guilt, all that shame, all the bad things they've done, all the consequences, all by themselves. And they don't know there's a Savior who's taken that burden upon Himself. He suffered that they might have life to the full, abundantly, joyfully. There were some uh, early settlers making their way out to Colorado back in the 1800s. Wagon train. They were crossing the western prairies and they were horrified to see a giant prairie fire coming in their direction. Pushed by winds coming out of the west, coming east across the plains. They didn't know what they were going to do. There was no place to go. There was no place to hide. It was so wide. And then one man, to their amazement, all of a sudden started setting fire to a patch of ground behind them. The tinder dry grass burned quickly and moved on behind them. And then he told them, okay, listen, everybody, move all of your wagons. Everybody walk on to the charred place. And as a giant prairie fire roared toward them, all of a sudden it split. They went to the left and to the right around the charred area. And they were safe. Because that area had already been burned. And they stood free and clear. It is the same when you come to Jesus. He has taken the fire of the wrath of God. And He's brought it upon Himself. And when you stand in Him, that wrath, that fire, those consequences that go around you, there's nothing left to burn. For we who have taken our stand by faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross, we're safe in the burned over place. And so the question I have, are you safe in the burned over place tonight? Are you, are you safe with Jesus who paid the penalty for our sins? You probably know this verse. 
For God so loved the world that He gave His own one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, I just want to say how grateful I am for Your going through my penalty, my suffering, the judgment for my sin. Lord, I pray that every one of us in this room will stand with you in the burned out place and sing the praises of your holy name now and forevermore. Amen. We're going to take communion now at Scum of the Earth. Tear off some of the bread. There's also gluten-free crackers in each station. And you dip it into the cup. Jesus said, do this, remembering what I've done for you. Don't forget. Remember to remember what I've done. Every time you take the bread and you drink of the cup, remember the sacrifice that I made for you so that you could stand free and clear in front of God. While we take communion, a song is going to play, one of my favorites, by Steve Taylor, Jesus is for Losers. If I could have the folks who pass out communion, come on up.